All right. Welcome to the Adaptex podcast, where we have discussions with individuals who are building accessible businesses or products, advocating for inclusion or excelling in adaptive sports. Our intention is never to speak on behalf of those with disabilities, but rather amplify their voice, ideas, and learn strategies to make our businesses more accessible. So hopefully you can as well. Today, we are joined by Michael Woods of Inclusive Sport Design, an organization in Australia that is improving the inclusivity and diversity of sport at all levels. Michael, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Brendan. It's great to be here. I'm super excited for our chat. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about what ISD is and how it is tackling this challenge of making sport and recreation more inclusive in your country? Yeah, sure thing. Inclusive sport design is um, now it's a, it's a consulting um, business. It started as a blog back in 2016, end of 2016. Um, really as a place for me to share information about what um, I thought would be helpful for sport organizations around good practice in terms of diversity and inclusion. And it, and it was kind of, you know, came from my desire to have some sort of a resource like that myself when I was starting out working in, in diversity, inclusion and adaptive sport um, that didn't really exist. Um, and so it kind of evolved um, where now I provide consulting and advisory services to sport organizations from community clubs all the way through to national sport organizations. Um, and I look at um, policy, program design, strategy, uh, education, um, capability building, um, essentially everything around uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion for sport organisations. And and whilst I do I do look at um, disability as an area of focus, um, we actually look at things across the broad spectrum of diversity and inclusion as well. So so we take a pretty broad spectrum view of of the work, which is really cool. It's interesting to hear you say that you it kind of like formed. Uh, as a result of you trying to like answer your own problem because my course kind of like came about in the same way like I couldn't find a resource that was comprehensive to like answer all the questions I had so I just began making it and Mm. the best way of me learning was doing my own research and then teaching it or like putting it into presentations to teach it so that's just kind of like how our curriculum came about was to like fill a gap that I identified within the fitness space but was there something specific that led you to kind of move into this industry or like something I guess that motivated or inspired you to like pursue this as a job? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting question that because um, the the journey into the adaptive sport and inclusive sports space was kind of, I won't say it was accidental, but it certainly wasn't a conscious decision, like as a, I want to work in this career, I want to work in this field. It was sort of this sort of thing that evolved over time and came as a result of um, some opportunities that came my way towards the end of my um, sports management degree when I was studying. Um, and I, t- I took an internship in the final year of, of my study, which was in the Disability Sport Education Program, which was a government funded program that went into schools and taught um, teachers and students about adaptive sport. And um, so I worked in that as an intern for, for a year and that really, I guess, educated me on what this sort of stuff was all about for the first time because it wasn't part of my studies at all. Um, and then you know, fast forward a, a year or two, a, a job came up um, at Swimming Australia, which was one of the first inclusion officers in a national sport organisation here that was dedicated to disability participation. And um, 
12 years later, <laughs> I stepped away from working at swimming after, after having looked at disability inclusion, sport pathways, high performance, talent ID, classification, um, as well as broader diversity policy in swimming um, and kind of, yeah, learnt my trade over that, over that course of pe period of time. And, um, and yeah, I found that people just kept asking me how I was doing what I was doing, coming and showing them how we were doing the work at swimming um, and constantly sort of, you know, picking my brain on, on stuff and asking me to help them and stealing the work, you know, or borrowing the work that we were doing. And, and so it sort of, you know, triggered me to think, oh, I can, I can make a bigger impact here and, and step away from just one sport and actually try and help as many as I could, which is sort of the journey I've been on. How do you get connected with those organizations or what kind of what maybe spurs them to reach out to you to improve their inclusivity? Yeah, that is a really great question. Um, initially, it was a lot of my own just professional network. You know, when you you know work in a career for twelve or so years, you you build a pretty a pretty good um, network and a bit of a professional reputation. So a lot of it's been just um, you know networks and word of mouth from from people that I have done work with. But nowadays. Um, it's a lot to do with the the drive of um, government-funded um, kind of requirements. You know, in Australia, funding is often linked to um, diversity and inclusion activities and outcomes, and so um, there's an increased, I guess, motivation for sports to take action on these sorts of things. Um, so that's one one sort of way things happen. The other is, um, you know, that there's a community expectation that's building and growing here in Australia and, and it's in other places as well where sport organizations, whether it's your club or a national sport organization or anything in between, is kind of expected to be doing this work one way or another. And so, um, so that also places a bit of pressure on organizations to take some action. Um, and that's, that's usually how, how things kick off. Um, otherwise it's me calling them and saying, you need to do this work and I can help you. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say like, do you have to sell them on the value proposition of this um i think most people understand the value of it i think um convincing people to take action is is key and showing them what actions they should be taking that's the challenging part because um, a lot of times you know sport organizations especially you know the closer you get to grassroots um, the more volunteer they are, the less qualified they are in terms of their understanding of diversity and inclusion and the less confident they are, particularly around engaging with people with disability. Confidence is a real factor at, at the grassroots level in particular. Um, and so it's often convincing them and showing them what they could be doing and should be doing rather than saying it's the right or good thing for them to do. Um, that That's what I've found anyway. Yeah, I mean, that echoes a lot of the similar experiences I've had trying to convince mm. gyms or universities to improve the knowledge that their staff have on inclusivity, uh, inclusivity and diversity. And uh, it's tough in this world. Like if you reach out to someone and you ask them, do you want to be more inclusive and accessible? No one's going to say no. But like you said, it's yeah. like getting them to actually take that action and uh, like commit to it, whether it's financially or, or time wise to take the necessary yeah. steps to improving it. It's sometimes tough. Yeah, and I, I kind of like to think of things in terms of, um, particularly, you know, in, ter in terms of the sort of solutions and services and approaches that I try to provide is how do you, how do you shift a person from that positive intention um, to meaningful action? And because you can say, yeah, our gym's inclusive or our 
university sport teams inclusive or club or you know whatever but what we really need people to be thinking about is um being able to articulate and show um this is how we make our our space our club our team inclusive this is how we do it and it's that bridging that intention to action which is the hard part because people will always say yep yeah, where anyone if, if anyone turns up i won't turn them away but they're not proactively engaging and including them yeah yeah that's what we say in our course to be proactive instead of reactive um when you're yeah. consulting with a team what are you offering them or kind of what uh, what are the components of isd yeah so it depends um so if we're talking about like a grassroots club or sport provider um kind of at the local level it's really about um what are those what are those capabilities that you need in terms of awareness and and understanding of um you know if we're talking about disability inclusion you know understanding um what inclusive communication um how do you connect with people in the community how do you adapt and modify your activities and programs and sessions to to meet individual needs um what do you what have you got in place in terms of policies and practices inside the organization um to ensure that inclusion um is part of what you do on a daily basis um that's kind of the focus um at the local level when we start to look at things like national sport organizations or peak bodies um who have a more complex environment um i always start with data um what's the what's the environment look like within your membership not just in terms of demographics or head counts of how many people with disability are in your membership or in your client base it's um what are their experiences um how how are how are they engaged in the sport and, and what are they experiencing in terms of accessibility belonging psychological safety those sort of factors and um and then um, by gathering that data you can understand where you need to focus energy and effort and where some of your opportunities are in in order to improve because without that information if you come up with a plan or a strategy um, which is the next step um you're kind of flying blind a little bit um you're kind of um you know guessing or assuming the the work that you need to do whereas if you gather that information you can be really targeted and specific about it um so then i usually take them through a process of um, assessing their internal operations and then look at a strategy and developing a framework for activity um that addresses their inclusion challenges moving forward and then you know building that into a continuous improvement model where you know they're regularly monitoring they're regularly reporting and they're regularly checking on their inclusion actions to make sure that they're implementing um, initiatives that are going to move the dial on access and inclusion for everybody um, so that's that's usually the key um, in sport organizations there's also the added complexity of things like competition so we can look at things particularly for disability and, and para sport pathways we can look at how their para sport pathway or the disability sport pathway supports participation through to elite competition outcomes and participation at that level so um that's kind of another nuanced piece of work that that i do as well yeah like you say kind of inclusivity goes beyond just the physical accessibility it's also that sense of belonging and um yeah. you can't really like instead of instead of assuming you know what an individual needs like you said getting that data from them to kind yeah. of actually guide your decisions is essential have you standardized yeah. that process in some way like is there an operations manual or do you have to be kind of like hands-on with it like every situation um, yeah that's a great question I, I think there's there's aspects of this that you can sort of standardize um, certainly I have a, a standardized process of what I look to assess and evaluate and collect data on um, 
but it does depend on the organization and the context in terms of where you might focus your energies or efforts. But um, I tend to think of things in frameworks rather than standard operating procedures, I guess, um, because because there is nuance in everything. And particularly from my perspective, when I'm looking at broad diversity and inclusion, you know, beyond disability, where we, we, we also look at, you know, multicultural engagement, LGBTQI plus engagement, um, Indigenous First Nations engagement, uh, women and girls, you know, all the buckets, right? Um, and so, so it's, it's a, it can be a complex process and, and you want to also work with an organization to build it into the way that they operate and their governance structures because everyone's a little bit different. Um, so it's important to have that flexibility in what you do, but knowing that there are some key principles and key approaches that are going to be um, universal across the board. Um, and, you know, when it comes to disability, a lot of it's to do with, um, yes, accessibility standards, um, communication, um, and adapting and modifying principles and techniques um, and choice. A big, a big thing that people don't think about often in this um, line of work is, is choice. They tend to sort of focus on, well, we're going to design one offering or we're going to create one program or we're going to um, you know, generate one product and try and make that fit for everyone. Um, when the reality is it's actually um, choice. Choice is the friend of inclusion and access. Um, the more choice you can provide, the more likely people are going to find an option that works for them. And those choices need to be adaptable. Yeah, I know we from our mutual acquaintance with Lisa Drennan, that was something that her and I talked yeah. about a lot. Like you can have those disability only sessions if you think that like that may be the preferred environment for some people. But yeah. the the essential component is that they have the opportunity to choose yeah. what environment they want to be in. And you're not just forcing everyone with a disability into one session solely yeah. because they have a diagnosis. Uh, so right. yeah, like you said, it's building the infrastructure. It's yeah, it's more frameworks because every, everyone's going to have a different situation. Same in the gym setting, everyone's going to have different number of staff and different sizes of facilities. So it's less so like yeah. do X, Y, Z and more so respond in, in these ways or anticipate these concerns. Uh, so I would imagine it's similar in the sport realm as well. Um, I could yeah. I could imagine that someone might hear um, this conversation in terms of like inclusive sport and think of mm. an organization like Special Olympics or the Paralympics as a whole. Like how mm. how do you relate to those organizations and maybe how do you differ from them and um, in various ways? Yeah, well, I mean, again, it goes back to that concept of choice, right? And, um, you know, inclusive sport design, we don't, we don't deliver sport opportunities for people. We, we work with organizations who are delivering support in the mainstream context. Um, and so we talk about this a lot with, with the organizations that we work with in terms of, um, you know, there's, there's a spectrum, right, of participation options. And we need to think about it in terms of a spectrum where, um, you know, one end or in one one sense we've got exclusion where people are not able to access sport participation for whatever that reason is whether it's discrimination no accessibility whether it's cost whether it's a self-imposed limitation of um you know perceptions about what sport is about um whatever those reasons are there's people that are excluded that's on one end and then along this spectrum there's other choices right there's segregated or se um, specialized models something like a special olympics where it's just for people with disability 
Um, and the context is important here too, because you might be thinking about a gym program and a specialized option might be a, a one-on-one or two-to-one or three-to-one program just for people with spinal cord injury, right? That's a specialized program. Super valid, it doesn't mean it's bad because it's specialized, it's just one of those options. It might suit some people really well. It might be an option that doesn't suit others. So you need something else. So what's the something else? Well, you can look at things like um, integrated options where you've got people with disability participating in activities alongside people without disability, um, either as a group or, or integrated as part of side-by-side programs or, or those sort of things. So that might be, you know, you've got a, um, maybe running a, a group class session in your gym and you might have a, an extra instructor to work with a group of people with intellectual impairment in the same group class as people without impairment so that they can get some extra help to participate and keep up while the rest of the class isn't, um, you know, impacted by the additional people coming in. Then you move to an inclusion model where it's people with disability doing the same activities um, in the same environments and spaces as anyone else. And that might be the gym doors are open, people with disability can come in, know that they're gonna have accessibility support and use the gym just like anyone else. Um, no differences. Um, all the way through to what I you know, call a belonging model, which is actually where people with disability alongside people without disability co-design and co-create the environment that they want to be in and they decide how it looks and they decide how it works and they set the the rules and norms and culture of the activity um and that's that's a belonging model and all of those things are choices and people might move through those choices or they might be doing multiple choices concurrently but the key thing at the center of all of that is choice and that's what enables access and inclusion is being able to offer those choices and facilitate the access and, and opportunity to take them up. Um, and so when you look at things like Special Olympics, they sit in there in that spectrum of choices and Paralympic Games at the elite level um, as a competitive option sits in that spectrum of choice, just like you know a gym with a integrated class is one of those choices. So, so gyms listening or, or sport clubs listening, um, you need to think about it in those terms. Um, and put the, the participant, the customer, the client at the forefront of your thinking there. What is it that they need and want and how do you design and deliver that so that they can access it? Yeah, that was beautifully articulated in a great framework. The yeah. belonging, the belonging step of it is, is interesting. And that that just kind of mm. comes from communication. Like when we when we talk about what should your first session with a new client look like, you mentioned earlier a lot of things that hold people back at the grassroots level is like confidence mm. communicating with people with disabilities or they don't have that experience yeah. so they're they're afraid to do yeah. so and it's like so what should my first session with someone with a disability look like and it's really just understanding i guess it would be considered that belonging model what environment do you want to work out in how much support do you want what do you want to work on what are yeah. your specific goals um, and then being able to curate the experience to that specific thing that they want um, I don't see a ton. Well, there's definitely a, a difference, but between your third step of like inclusion and the belonging model, I think the two might go somewhat hand in hand. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think um, you know those those ideas, those models, they're, they're not fixed, right? So there's overlap, and there's there's sort of you know it's it's blurred at the edges in terms of of what things are. And and you might find um, we actually had a really great conversation in a webinar that I ran a few weeks ago, where um, someone shared their experience. We were talking about this spectrum of participation, and and she shared this experience of the swim club that she's involved with, and she talked about in training in squad time they run a um, an integrated model where um, they have an all abilities squad that trains in their own lane, but alongside the standard squads uh, at the same time in the same club. So they run they run that, um, and sometimes that, that could also be looked at in terms of a specialization model as well, um, although it's in the club environment. But when they go away on team to competitions, they go as one team. So they do, you know, they sit in the stands together. They um, they do the social activities together. They travel together. That's that's an inclusion model. Um, but then when they go to actually race in Australia, we have a multi-class system um, where, which is sort of the the pathway for Paralympic competition, um, where lots of different impairments will be competing and racing against each other. Right? Those events are run within the competition program alongside the standard um, competitions for events for people without disability so that's an integrated model again when they actually compete so you can see that as the context changes the choice of participation can change to suit the needs uh, and options and you know those those kids with disability could have the option to compete in the standard races as well they're not they're not fixed into the multi-class and disability specific option they can they can choose the other ones um, but you see that as the context changes, as the needs change, the environment changes, so does the participation option. And that, that that's a really good sort of way to think about it. Um, so gyms should be thinking about, yeah, we might run, you know, personal training sessions that look specialized, but we also have group classes that look inclusive, but we also have open gym time and membership options that are, um, you know, inclusive or adaptive that just meet the needs and and have all those different choices and deliver them so um yeah yeah it's like it's like personal training while it might seem like if you're just starting to integrate people with disabilities into your model and and you're most comfortable doing one-to-one personal training that's it doesn't have to be exclusionary as long as like if i got a client even even if it was someone without a disability and they were new to fitness they didn't have much from a, like a strength and conditioning background or fitness level i wouldn't want to just throw them into a group class with all these well-trained people just for the sake of being inclusive uh it's like you want to make sure they have the prerequisite skills to participate yeah. safely and effectively so you, that's where yeah like you said it's very context dependent we can kind of look at inclusion as an experience and less so as like a box to check like you don't get to say like i'm inclusive yeah. like your members dictate whether they feel included. yeah yeah so yeah inclusion's not a program i always say that inclusion is not a program it's not a session right it's not a product it's a process um and it's a, an experience um and, and you've got to think about it in those terms. And, and if you're saying you're inclusive and you're promoting yourself as that, um, be careful <laughs> because it might not be. Um, but the, the process and culture and, and practices of being inclusive is something that you need to build into your day-to-day business, build it as core business. And people will, people will 
flock to that you, you won't need to promote it because people will just know um and and people with disability in particular they're really great referrers so if you're doing a really great job they're going to tell their their colleagues friends and networks because they're in them and and you'll you'll find that people will start um being attracted to your offering because you're offering great experience for someone else yeah it's definitely an easy way to differentiate yourself within a lot of industries yeah um definitely what is what is your specific model like from a, a business standpoint are you functioning as a non-profit or a for-profit no i'm a company um so for profit um profit for purpose i guess um, um but um but a lot of a lot of things go back into the business um for the benefit of community you know i do the podcast which takes a lot of time uh, the sport is for everybody podcast if anyone wants to check it out um um, that's about similar to this podcast, um, amplifying the voices of people doing the good work and and helping people to learn more about how to go about uh, inclusion in their in their sport organisations and, and practice. Um, and we have a lot of free resources on the website, templates, tools, downloads, articles, that sort of thing, because that's where that's where this all started was trying to get things out there into the world that were going to benefit people and we're going to be there for the long term. Um, but um but yeah we're a company um it's just me at the moment but looking to sort of build the team and expand the scope of work and capabilities and things um as we go but um but it's yeah it's an interesting process to to work in this space and and generate profit (laughs) with it being a solo person because my work has sometimes been pretty similar and um Mm -hmm. i i try to get opinions and feedback and reviews from other people because it it seems tough for me to be like establishing myself as an authority figure uh, without the lived experience of disability and I I never claim to have all of the answers it's just helping people um, consolidate Mm. a lot of information and try to put it into something that's digestible do you ever do you ever worry as a single person that you're kind of developing these standards or are you working with other people to come up with these criteria? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a daily conundrum for, for someone like me as well. Um, that is, um, you know, effectively represents the, the, the cultural minor, uh, cultural majority here in Australia, you know, um, um, white, cisgendered male, private school educated, um, no experience of disability, um and so um in my in my day-to-day i'm always looking to make sure that if i'm working with an organization i'm either bringing lived experience with me in the form of um, other people or i'm helping them to understand the importance and value and, and put in, in put in place processes to engage with people with lived experience to inform what they're doing as well. So, um, and that's another reason for the podcast is to, to bring that lived experience perspective into into the discourse as much as I can and amplify that. Um, but I am looking at ways, how do I bring that into the business so that I can add that, at, you know, as an offering um, to, to the services, but also to bring that perspective into the the work that I do and the, the, the way that I view um, view the work. But the, the the other thing that people can do in, in terms of advice, if, if there's anyone out there thinking about this is, you know, you can build your experience and awareness and understanding by engaging with people from your target audience, like people with disability. If you don't, if you don't have the lived experience, then talk to people who do, um, get to understand what their lived experiences is, um, so that you can, you can build your understanding of that. Read books, read, 
research, um, read case studies, you know, educate yourself on these things um, so that you can build your appreciation. It doesn't mean that you um, take on that lived experience by any stretch. It just means that you're able to be more aware and more empathetic uh, and bring that perspective to your thinking and, and shift your own biases because we all have those. I have those um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a constant work piece for, for someone like me to keep keep those biases at bay and, and try and um, expand my perspective. So you've got to do that. Um, but it is a, it's a challenging area, but there, there's something to be said for professional expertise as well. Um, because equally just by having lived experience doesn't necessarily make you an expert at implementing practice and policy and, and, and working in a consulting kind of fashion. Um, I think, I think there's skill sets on both sides. There's, there's value on both sides and, and to be effective, we've got to, you know, meld those things together when we work with organizations and even internally, um, you know, if you're leading a gym and you want to bring that lived experience perspective, hire people with disability. That's a Absolutely. great way to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that that was well articulated as well because it's something like a moral dilemma that I kind of go through as well, and that's why yeah. the podcast has been nice because I have these conversations and there's segments that I can pull, and I immediately think to sections of my course where I'm trying to talk about something, I'm trying to articulate something, and then a podcast guest with an SEI says something that completely confirms or kind of shifts my perspective a little bit and i know yeah. that now i have that clip that i can reference uh and kind of like you said like bring the lived experience uh into the like the professional work that that yeah. i'm doing but um yeah like you said i think there's i see it a lot on linkedin i guess with um voices in mm. the disabled community um that are dismissing people uh that are kind of doing the work or at least trying to mm. support them because they don't have a disability it's always a tough it's a tough balance to find i guess but um i guess if the intentions are good and uh we're kind of seeing concrete evidence that the work that you're doing is is improving the inclusivity then then you can at least mm. uh, fall back on that. But are you are you uh, hoping to expand beyond Australia? Have you expanded beyond Australia with the work that you do? Um, not in terms of servicing um, organizations and clients, but you know, Inclusive Sport Design has a global network. You know, we've got a mailing list and a, and a Facebook group community, um, and so. What, what you know part of part of the mission is is to, to connect and and support the community of people working in this space globally um so and that, that's sort of you know one of those non-revenue generating activities that we take on as part of our kind of social impact approach but um so in that regards we're, we're connected globally um and um, recently just ha started having some conversations in new zealand um which which may lead to something um but um predominantly australian for now but not not exclusive right um the one of the challenges with going into an international context particularly for for the broad diversity work um is that you know culture plays a really important part in how these things um are attacked and um, different countries are at different stages and phases in terms of their awareness and understanding and acceptance around various aspects of inclusion, um, particularly disability, particularly in the LGBT space. Um, and so to go into those places 
will take a bit of cultural awareness building for myself to to make sure that I can be effective um, and I can be um, yeah impactful um, in those contexts. But it's it's definitely not off the table. Um, so if there's anyone internationally looking at addressing this work um, and they think we can help, you know, reach out. We're we're here. Um, there's plenty of resources. A lot of international um, you know universities and organisations actually you know link to our resources and and refer to our content and things as part of their their resources and as part of um, supporting the work that they do, um, which is which is really cool. Um, but I have I've recently did some work with Netball Australia and, and worked with the international um, netball associations in the Pacific Islands uh, region, sort of just north of Australia. Um, and we did some disability and inclusion awareness type training stuff. And that was that was super interesting, uh, really, really cool. And then these organizations are at, you know, just the start of getting organized in terms of professionalizing their administration for, for the sport of netball. Um, but they're already looking at this diversity, inclusion and disability participation. Um, but, you know, Pacific Island nations have a, a totally different socioeconomic structure and system and culture to Australia. Uh, so it's, it's really interesting, but the principles are universal. So it, it you can, you can get impact out of that. Is netball a spike ball? N- Netball. So netball is a. Is that, is that synonymous with spike ball? No. No, it's not no. just like a. It's not like a trampoline ball in the middle. No, 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 uh, no, no. So net netball is a, a sport that's typically played played in Commonwealth nation countries. So Australia, the UK, okay. um, New Zealand, etc. And it's um, imagine basketball, but you don't bounce the ball. You can't move with the ball uh, and there's no backboards on the net right Um, and it's predominantly a women's women's sport although that that is shifting certainly here in australia men are starting to play but um but yeah it's a very traditional australian and english sport (laughs) it's really Um, big over here (laughs) is it yeah yeah what um what are you working on now that you're most excited about Oh, I'm, I'm doing some, oh, well, so many things. Um, <laughs> That's a good thing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good thing, but there's only so many hours in the day, right? Um, I'm doing some really great work with one sport organization here um, around building their disability competitive sport system from scratch, basically. They don't have a sport pathway uh, for disability and there's no international body or equivalent offering it. So it's, a, again, another kind of unique sport in surf life saving um which is um typically in a very strong here in australia um in terms of the sports side of it um so that's really exciting because we're we're basically building a pathway developing eligibility criteria competition programs um all the way from sort of local level to national level um so that's that's a really um, challenging piece of work but a really exciting one because of the impact that it can have um, the other things that are kind of exciting is, um, you know, I'm working on, on an app around um, sport and leisure venue um, accessibility, uh, not in terms of, um, you know, compliance accessibility and building standards and building code accessibility, but broad access and inclusion around, you know, environments that people can access and how do we measure that. Um, so that's that's an ongoing piece of work, but it's again super exciting to to think about the impact that it can have, um, and otherwise just building some um, building some more resources and online training offerings um, for the community and and trying to um, trying to bring those to life. And as of 
um, the time of the recording, um, there is a new disability coaching course about to launch um, here in Australia that, that I, I've helped put together with the National Disability Sport Organisations here that'll, that'll go live out to all of Australian sport coaching system, um, which is really cool. Um, it's a great little program and um, just yeah aims at building those those capabilities and confidence factors for coaches around disabilities so um, yeah a few things going on do you think that latter course that you referred to would be applicable to the fitness space as well yeah I think so and it, there's probably some some overlapping well there is definitely some overlap in terms of the content and stuff that, that is likely in your course um, very principles based adapting modifying communication confidence building and, and to the point earlier around lived experience um, we made sure that in that product um, we actually brought the voices of athletes and participants um, into that to share their perspectives around all of the the competencies that we're addressing so there's you know video interviews with them telling telling it how it is sharing their experience sharing how inclusion affected their life and their career and the role of sport in their lives and that's that's really compelling in terms of motivating people to act we've wrapped up most of these recordings with the um the question like what do you think has to be done to make the fitness space more accessible since that's kind of our target audience yeah uh so um awareness and in, and and confidence and competency of trainers is essential um and often a lot of it is is confidence not competence um so that that education and awareness piece i think is is essential and um ideally that sort of thing gets built into standard um education systems you know when you're doing your, your certifications as a trainer it should be built into those certifications ideally rather than as a sort of a standalone thing that's just as a principle of mine but but certainly project programs like yours and and there's others out there um are a really important part of that um addressing access for venues is really important if people can't get to in and around your venue then that's a massive barrier um, so, so that's the other the other thing that, that venues need to be universally accessible for everybody. Um, so if your if your gym's at the top of a flight of stairs, um, you need to start thinking about some options to, to improve that access. As an example, and there's plenty of others that don't necessarily include infrastructure, um, environmental access, and, and and cultural access, and um, you know attitudes around gyms um, is really important. It's something I like to think about and. And this might resonate with with, with you as well. Is um, you might have all the ramps, lifts, and accessibility technology um, on the facility, but if someone arrives at your gym and the receptionist is rude and dismissive and doesn't believe that you belong there, then all those ramps and <laughs> equipment mean nothing, yeah. <laughs> you know. Or if yeah. the the rest of the members aren't welcoming and they're you know their ableist attitudes and they're exclusive and creating an environment of you know that's not safe then no one's going to come so so that's important um but the the probably the the other thing is um how how do gyms connect with people with disability in their community what does that process look like um and this is where gym owners can put their marketing hats on and start to think about people with disability as a new vertical in their customer acquisition model how do we how do we attract them what is the offering that's compelling for them 
and and how do we how do we sell them right and think about it in those terms because people with disability do have money right not all people with disability are on pensions or on um support systems some of them are but not all of them um there's a whole heap of impairments that aren't visible right and that there are nuances in how you service them um so so think about them as a new customer um customer channel and market to them yeah absolutely there was a I try not to be cynical. There was a video that was viral on social media that was um, about someone who owns a gym and everyone with a disability gets to train for free. Um, and everyone was praising him for it, um, mm. obviously. But part of me was like, that's gonna just inadvertently marginalize all people with disabilities. It's yeah. like the charity. It's like the charity model. Like yeah. you have the person who's helping the person with the disability is like the the knight in shining armor coming to like save them. And it's like yeah. it's well intentioned, but um, yeah. it's like I said, kind of marginalizing the population. But it's you can't dismiss something like that or critique it to a degree. But I I don't have a solution but it was just something that that i came across earlier this week and yeah it kind of i don't know it's, exactly how to feel about it yeah 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 it's it's one of those things right you go yeah good on you you you're doing something you know good for the world whatever but the reality is um gyms are commercial operations not charities typically um and to be sustainable um you need to generate revenue and to provide a service you need to a good a good quality service you need to cover your costs and, and and offer all of the same benefits that you have for your paying members um the other thing is that it assumes that that approach is 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 based on a medical medicalized model of of disability includes disability um which basically says that you know people with disability need to be saved serviced protected um and whilst on face value that might seem um positive it actually reduces people with disability in terms of their capability and value in the world. And people with disability are as valuable in terms of their contributions and they have the same sorts of demands and expectations as anybody else. And so you need to treat them as customers in the same way as you treat others. Um, some people with disability may have limitations in terms of resources. They may have additional needs in terms of supports, but good businesses will understand that and they'll provide offerings that meet those needs and are priced at a point which A, covers your costs and margins, but also provides a decent service. And if you look at restaurants around the world, the number of restaurants that are now offering gluten-free, you know, um, allergen-free, all, all these different, you know, dairy-free, all these different options to meet dietary needs, right? If they took the same approach of saying, well, or all of the gluten intolerant people can come to our restaurant and eat for free, Everyone be like, "What the hell are you doing? Charge them! Like, char charge them more! <laughs> like, you know, because you've got to do more work." So, you've got to shift that thinking and, and start to say, "This is actually part of a product line of things that we can offer, and there's value in that for me and the customer, and that's okay." <laughs> I I, you know. I really like that as kind of like a a thing to wrap up on because I think it's yeah. we touched on like models of disability and models of inclusion. Um, mm -hmm. and then kind of transition into like that perspective um, where inclusion's not necessarily a charitable endeavor. Um, it's just a mm -hmm. matter of belonging and uh, finding ways to support people that have different needs. 
might have a diagnosis they might not but everyone has various needs so yeah it's got to be kind of part of core business you got to build it into the way you run your business into the culture practices and processes and if you do that it becomes sustainable and it's meaningful it's really meaningful because you're doing it um on a daily day-to-day basis um and if anyone's still struggling with that idea (laughs) replace person with disability with person of color if you invited people of color into your mainstream gym and said oh because you're different you can train for free or you get a different treatment um imagine how that would feel how that would sit um it's it's got to be the same people with disability they're they're humans they're people they're customers um serve them as such understand their needs and deliver it like it's it's actually when you reduce it to that it's really simple thank you for listening to the adaptx podcast our effort to amplify the ideas of our guests and create more inclusive and accessible industries is futile unless these episodes reach a larger audience if you enjoyed our discussion today please leave us a rating or a review on whichever platform you use and if you would like to learn more about adaptx the course that we teach to health and fitness professionals and the projects that our organization is working on you can subscribe to our newsletter through our website www.adaptx.org until next monday